Good morning. Door Creek, how are we doing? Great to see you. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm on the teaching team here. Uh, I come from the faraway land of DeForest, uh, the DeForest campus, one of our three uh, campuses uh, here at Door Creek Church. It's great to be with you. Uh, for real, how are you? It, it's felt sleepy here. Can we just like wake up a little bit? Is it okay? You've got your coffee? Good. Uh, so um, we're continuing in our series called Big Mistake, looking at these facepalm moments uh, from some of our heroes, some of our maybe not so heroic people in the Bible, uh, reflecting on our own big mistakes, and, and we're, we're trying to find out what, what's the lesson we can learn, but, and more than that, what is, what is God's grace doing in us right now to redeem our biggest mistakes and make sure that they're not the end of our story, right? So today's uh, message uh, is called Without a Doubt, Without a Doubt, and uh, I just want to start with a little personal uh, kind of illustration here. So when I was 18 years old, um, I, I was uh, what you would call like on fire, uh, on fire for, for God, on fire for Jesus. I love Jesus. My affections, my everything was just kind of like, you know, I was all in. I was all in. I didn't care about money. I didn't have a driver's license. It was kind of, I was kind of lame in a lot of ways, but I love Jesus. And like a lot of lame uh, young men and young women who just love Jesus and that's their whole world, uh, they, they do Jesus-y stuff. And so one Jesus-y thing I did is I did a discipleship training school with this organization called YWAM, Youth with the Mission. If you're not familiar with them, they're a global organization that uh, disciples students and adults and, and they tell people about Jesus all over the world. I was like, yes, that sounds perfect for me. And so I spent three months in Holland, in the Netherlands. <clears throat> and we were working in the red light district, uh, serving uh, uh, people on the street there. We were doing all sorts of stuff, praying, seeing God move. And, and I was just like ignited in my passion for God. And I remember one night, the, it was rare that the clouds cleared away. I was in Amsterdam and I, was, I saw the stars and I, my mind was just on fire. And I recalled the words of Psalm 8 that say, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? It, it's like this, this time in my life that I look back on and go, wow, Jesus was so tangible to me. Have you ever had a time like that? Maybe like a baptism or maybe like a, a wedding or a marriage or maybe a sermon that you heard or something where you're just like, wow, I am so convinced of the reality of Jesus. I can almost touch him right now. I call these moments like Jesus sightings and we have those throughout our life, but we also have these other kinds of moments. So fast forward two years later, I was 20 years old and I was in Bible school back where I grew up in Minnesota uh, and I started to, um, I started to date uh, someone date a girl that I, I, I knew I shouldn't have dated. And I, I just be totally tra transparent, my motives uh, weren't, weren't totally uh, good. Uh, they were a little selfish, a lot selfish actually. And I started crossing lines that I thought I would never cross emotionally, physically with her. And I started to compromise these, these values and, and really I was dishonoring her, I was dishonoring God, right? 
And I, I wasn't listening to the people who were trying to warn me that I was doing this. My parents, some of my friends, some of my teachers, I just kind of shut them out. I stopped engaging in the word of God, stopped taking it in, and I, be, I became more and more distant and cold in my affection and my love for God. Why? Because it was easier to start to deny and doubt God's goodness and his presence and his authority in my life than it was to fess up to my sin. Maybe you've been there. And then one night, I remember walking, uh, and I was so depressed, I was, I was just, I was stressed out, I, was, I just felt disconnected, and I remember looking up at the stars again, but for the first time in my life, I saw the stars, and I, I did not see the handiwork of God. I saw cold, meaningless chaos, and it terrified me because I got a glimpse of what life would be like without God. And I was at this point where I was literally questioning the existence of God. Even I had grown up in a Christian family, grown up, and I had these moments, these Jesus sightings before, I was questioning his very existence, and I said, God, if you're there, if you can hear me, you've gotta do something because I am hanging by a thread right now. And it wasn't like an earth-shattering moment, but God started to remind me of some of the Jesus sightings he'd had. He started to bring me back to his wisdom and, and to his goodness. I started talking with people I trusted and opening myself up and taking in his word. And eventually, over weeks and months, I was able to uh, walk with God again. I, I, I made amends with, with this girl that is, is a dear sister in Christ now. And, and I don't know, have you had, had a moment like that? I think in the juxtaposition between those two types of moments in our lives, we, we see the, the reality that the Christian life isn't all Jesus sightings, that there are times, sometimes long seasons, we're confronted by, by incredible doubts. And so the question is, did Jesus know that this was gonna be the case for us? Like, is this normal? And I, I, we're gonna look at the story of Thomas and we're gonna see that it is absolutely normal. We're gonna see that life in Christ is life with doubts. Life in Christ is life with doubts. And if you are a believer, if you've been a believer for a while, you know this is true. If you're not a believer, it's true. Life with Christ is life um, with doubts. So did Jesus have any idea how hard it would be to, uh, to believe in him, to, to believe him when we're praying and praying and praying and nothing is changing. Or uh, when we look around and we see people from other religions or sometimes maybe even no religion at all who are better off or maybe more moral than, than Christians that we know. Like did Jesus know how hard it would be to cling to belief in him when that was the case? Or like he's told us to not be anxious for anything right, to not worry about tomorrow, but is, is it, did he know how hard it would be when we're looking at our income and looking at our checking account, we're going, there is a lot more month than there is money right now. God, what are you gonna do? Do you care right now? And the answer is that Jesus knew that life would be like this for us, and this is why he gave us the story of Thomas. And guess what, what we're gonna learn is that the story of Thomas teaches us that our problem isn't doubt, it's deeper than doubt. And the solution isn't proof. It's more surprising and it's more helpful uh, than proof. So let's, 
Let's dive in here. This is a story that equips followers of Jesus who are in between Jesus' sightings. So if you can, go ahead and if you've got a Bible, turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And while you're turning there, let me just get you kind of caught up to what's happening. So God, what has God been after? Like, why do we exist? We exist to be in relationship with God, not just a fuzzy, hey, we're in relationship with God, but a productive kind of relationship. A relationship, I would just call it like a creation partnership. He formed man and woman um, out out of his creation and um, he blessed them and he said be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it he was looking for co-rulers of his creation people to tap into all the goodness that he has made and to create more goodness more art more beauty more justice and all of that but what happened we rejected God we seized autonomy we, we decided humanity decided to, that they wanted to define what was right and good and what was bad on their own terms and leave God out of the picture and we introduced chaos and sin and disease and mosquitoes into the world I'm convinced that mosquitoes are a result of the fall it's not in the Bible but I'm just there anyway uh, and so Jesus comes to reveal what God's like and we read about him in the Gospels. We read about how he, uh, he is inviting people into a new age, an age where death isn't the end, an age where people can be healed, an age where justice uh, is exalted, where the poor and the vulnerable are lifted up and no longer used to build the empires of the rich and the haughty, right? He, he called out, the, uh, the, the establishment, he called out the religious hypocrites, the Jewish uh, patriarchy, and they didn't like it at all. And so they didn't like it so much that they worked with the Roman authorities, they manipulated the Roman authorities to get him crucified on a Roman torture device that we call a cross. But John tells us that after three days of being dead, that he rose again from death. He defeated death, and then he started showing up and proving that he was alive to his disciples. And in John chapter 20, we see three uh, Jesus sightings. He shows up to Mary, uh, he shows up to the disciples, and then later he shows up to Thomas. And when he's, he, he walks into a locked room where the disciples were, and he does this thing, he breathes on them, it says. It's very strange. What's he doing? I think he's, he's echoing the page one of the Bible where God formed man out of the dust and breathed his life into him. I think he's saying, I am recreating humanity. I'm filling you with the Holy Spirit to empower you to live out this new life, this new kingdom on this earth. But there was one disciple who wasn't there when he did that. It was Thomas. So let's, let's catch up. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 24. It says here, and I have the words here, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, uh, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came, okay? This is really important because we're gonna see later that they say, we saw the Lord, and he has to trust them, right? And it's really interesting that we have to do the same thing because we weren't there either, right? We're in the same kind of position of needing to trust these eyewitnesses that he was. So let's see what he does. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see 
the nail marks in his hands, not just see, but unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And the English translation hides the double negative in the Greek. He was saying, I will no not believe. No way, no how, I'll believe it when I see it. Now this is really interesting because this is a strong statement. And this isn't a statement of doubt. This isn't doubt. Because if he was just doubting, what he would do is he would say, hmm, I doubt that. Let me, let me consider the evidence, right? But did Thomas do that? No, he refused to believe. Now that's something entirely different. To refuse to believe without considering the, the evidence, that's called incredulity. Incredulity, you know, when you're incredulous about something, it means that you're refusing to consider the evidence, not just doubting. And that's Thomas's big mistake. And it can be our big mistake. See, doubt is when we struggle to believe. Incredulity is when we refuse to look at the evidence. And we've all done both of these. And hopefully I can show you how. So if he was just doubting, he would have considered the evidence. Thomas would have gone back and gone, huh, did Jesus feed 5,000 people with a basket of fish and bread? Yes. Did he control weather with his words and walk on water? Yes, right? He would have gone back to the things that he had seen Jesus do and he would have, looking at the facts, looking at the evidence, come to a place of belief. But here he was refusing to even consider that stuff. Any, um, anyone here use Apple Maps? Come on, don't be shy. A few people. All right, you're very brave. Uh, Google Maps, where are my Google Maps people at? All right, yep, we're together in that. Uh, Waze, anyone use Waze? A few people. I find that Waze people are really arrogant. They're like, you should use Waze. Um, <laughs> MapQuest, does, any, does that even exist anymore? Oh, a couple of people, all right, good. MapQuest, uh, I remember yeah, you used to have to like go on the computer and print the directions out. Maybe some of you still do that, I don't know. So Apple Maps, I personally, I don't use Apple Maps. Why? Because I've been led to enough cornfields and abandoned parking lots and my, with my phone telling me, you've arrived at your destination. And I'm like, Tim Cook, I have not arrived at my destination. I'm sorry, I don't trust you, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you've gotten the email from you know, your boss or like the bosses and they've said, we've got this great new healthcare plan. It's gonna be better for everyone. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, you mean it's gonna be cheaper, right? For you, right? Or, or maybe you get that call from your mom and says, I just talked to your brother and he's coming for Christmas and he says he's turned his life around, right? What's the reaction there? It's like, okay, I'll believe it when I see it, right? What's going on? There, there's, there's pain underneath the doubt. There's something deeper than doubt there. It's not just, um, it's not just doubting the facts. There's, there's a past experience that's causing you to be incredulous. Uh, so when I was a children's pastor in Reno, there, we just finished a ministry event and everyone had gone home and it was kind of getting late at night and it was dark. It was dark outside. We walked outside and there was a single mom and there was a single dad and they were, we were all kind of getting to know each other. And the single mom was not a believer. Uh, she was new to the whole church thing. She was new to our church community. Um, and, and she was struggling with this idea, like how, how is it that people get to heaven only when they believe in Jesus? Like isn't it enough just to be a good person? 
It's a good question coming from a non-believer. And so this, this single dad who had been a believer for a long time, he, he presented what he knew from scripture. And he was, I think, totally well-intentioned. He's, he started quoting Isaiah and he said, well, yeah, but, but to God, all of our good behavior, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, right? It's true what he was saying. But she walked away and she never came back. Why is that? Well, what he didn't know, but I knew because of, because of just being a pastor, is that the reason she was there and the reason she was a single mom is because she found out that her husband had been molesting, been molesting their daughter. What did she need in that moment? She didn't need facts. She needed empathy. She didn't need someone to correct her misunderstanding. She needed someone to heal her wounds, right? And she was incredulous because of that. Look, doubt... Doubt is when experience questions truth, and that happens to us all the time. But incredulity is when experience trumps truth. And there are lots of causes for incredulity. And I can only speculate as to what was causing Thomas's incredulity. I think there are a lot of possibilities, and again, I'm only speculating here, but I wonder if it was because he was betrayed. Could it have been betrayal? Like, he and, and the disciples, they were a brotherhood. They were a collective. They were hardened by, uh, by all of the, the uh, persecution they were getting from the outside. They, they ate together. They slept together. They traveled together. They lived out the teachings of Jesus together. They witnessed some incredible things together. There was a bond there, but Judas, Judas, in the end, decided to sell out. He cashed out for 30 pieces of silver and he walked away. I wonder how that affected Thomas. Was he going, wait a second, you're telling me that Judas, my brother Judas, cashed out at the very onset of what we're trying to do here, at the very beginning of this movement. I wonder if Jesus really is who he says he is. Have you been betrayed? You know what that's like? You know, when you find out that someone has done something and you're looking at them and you don't even recognize them anymore, they look like a stranger to you. And there's this weird thing happens when we're betrayed. We look at them and we, we start to question everything that they were a part of in our lives. Was that even real? You know? And that especially is powerful and, and damaging when it's someone up here, right? When it's a pastor or a preacher or a teacher that, that betrays what they've been saying betrays, what happens is that we, we go, is everything they said a lie, right? I mean, it doesn't just have to be a Christian leader. It can be anyone who in your mind represents a Christian. Like, um, I just totally cringe when I see the car driving with like 40 Jesus bumper stickers and, and they're like cutting people off and I'm like, oh, please don't do that, right? I don't have Jesus bumper stickers on my car and it's not because I'm ashamed of Jesus, it's because I'm not a very good driver. Maybe it was that he was betrayed. Or maybe it was that, that God wasn't answering his prayers. I mean, think about this. When you read the Gospels, you realize that none of Jesus' disciples thought Jesus was gonna die, even though he told them again and again. In fact, you know, Peter, when Jesus said, I am going to be, I'm gonna be killed uh, and then raised again, Peter said, it will, may it never be. You're not gonna die. And what did Jesus say? He said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. 
You have the mindset of man and the world, not the mindset of God. And then the, the temple guards came to arrest Jesus and Peter's out there with his little sword attacking them, trying to defend Jesus, right? And then they arrest Jesus and, and all the disciples scatter. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that they were praying for angels to come and to rescue Jesus. Praying against the very thing that God was using to save them. How often do we do that? I wonder. How often have you experienced a prayer that's gone unanswered? and questioning, God, do you care? Are you able to fix this, right? Are you even there? Maybe it was unanswered prayer. Maybe it was that Thomas was overwhelmed by his circumstances, right? That can be a huge uh, opportunity for incredulity to sink in. Like, what, what was Thomas and, and what were those disciples called to go out and do? They were called to leave their locked room and go tell people about Jesus. Basically, put a target on their backs and, to, and guarantee a place of dishonor in, in their communities. That was, that's a huge ask that Jesus was asking them to do. Maybe he felt overwhelmed by that. Have you felt overwhelmed? to the thing that, that you're supposed to do, like there's way too much month at the end of the money, or like the baby just won't sleep and I'm so exhausted, or God, are, are you here in the midst of my anxiety right now? Do you know what I have to do at work? Do you know how relentless the demands on me are? I don't think I have enough. Are your promises true? These are all things that can cause incredulity. But I'll tell you what it wasn't for Thomas. It wasn't that he was honestly considering the intellectual facts. And we like to fix doubts with facts. What we need is healing. Life in Christ is life with doubts. And, and Jesus is so wise that he doesn't offer proof to, he doesn't just offer proof to fix our intellectual questions. He offers healing for our wounds. He offers belief as a gift. Let's continue on in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them. That's awesome. Can we just, like, that's cool. Like, whoa. Uh, but it was more than just a neat trick. And what did Jesus say? He said, peace be with you. Okay? Verse 27 then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So do you catch Jesus' gentleness? Do you catch his strength at the same time? Like the way Jesus is dealing with Thomas and his doubts and his incredulity is the way he deals with us. You notice that, that Jesus offers the thing that Thomas has been looking for before he gives them the command to believe? He does the same thing for us. Jesus never commands us to believe without giving grace first. What is belief? Belief is a gift. It's a gift that heals our incredulity. Not just a command, but a gift. Let's look at the way Jesus comes to Thomas to heal him in his incredulity. First of all, he comes alive. He comes alive, not dead, alive. So seeing Jesus 
appear in that locked room, not, not dead, not even tired, or, or like wounded, like he was wounded, but, but not like hurting, right? Like he was whole, he was full of energy, he was probably smiling, right? Probably laughing. Like that must have been the most glorious shock to Tom's. It must have totally scrambled all of his categories of, of what the world is like and what it means to be a human being. And he probably wasn't thinking about this at the time, but, but reflecting back, I'm sure he was like, wait a second, Jesus is alive. That means that my past is changed because all of my sin, all of my shame, everything that I've done that's brought ruin into my life and into the lives of people around me, God has taken care of that because it means Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God. It means his past was changed. It means his present was changed because God is not dead. He's not distant. He's actually alive. He's accessible. He's, he's interceding for us. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you? Like you. He's, Jesus is praying for you. That's pretty cool. Our present has changed. Our past has changed. And, and our future has changed. Because what Jesus' resurrection shows that he came alive, it shows that he defeated death. That death isn't the end. Disease isn't the end. That in, in the end, we, get, we all get rehabbed bodies in a rehabbed world when we believe in Jesus. He came alive. He comes with peace. He came with peace. So what did he say? He, he stepped into the room and he said, peace be with you. It was a customary greeting at the time, but I'm sure as Thomas and, and his fellow apostles were starting to record these things and remember what happened, he's like, no, he said peace. He said peace. Uh, that's pretty amazing because what is peace? Shalom is wholeness. It, it's a relationship that is unmarred. It's unbroken. It is, it's the way it should be. That's what the resurrection is about. The resurrection is about God bringing peace into chaos, peace in our relationship with him, peace in our relationship with one another, peace in our relationship with creation, with the world itself, peace within our own bodies, without disease, without cancer, without Alzheimer's, peace with our own minds, without self-hatred, without shame. Jesus came offering peace. And when did he offer peace? Was it after Thomas believed or before? It was before. Jesus is offering peace to you right now, no matter where you are in your doubts, no matter where you are in your incredulity, no matter where you are in your fear, he's offering peace right now. All we have to do is recognize that. Finally, he comes with wounds. With wounds. So Jesus, when he appeared to Thomas, he didn't appear as this supreme being, just kind of like unscathed by human problems, untouched. No, he came with wounds. I mean, think about that for a second. He came as someone who understands our deepest and darkest moments. He understands our pain. He comes to us alive, but wounded. He comes to us perfect, but forever marked. He comes to us glorified and resurrected, but with scars. And think about the anatomy of that. His entire body was made new. I don't know what his resurrected body was made of. I, we, we don't know. We couldn't test it. 
It was something else. It was something divine that was integrated into his physical body. Every part of his body was eternal. He could walk through walls. He kind of had this like vision thing going on from like Marvel, you know, I don't know. You could eat a fish and when he walked through a wall, the fish didn't fall out. I'm not sure what was going on with that. He was like disappearing and reappearing, doing crazy stuff, but he still had wounds. He still had scars and his scars, he kept those to tell a story. You know that your scars tell a story? Do you have a scar that someone's asked you about? And you're like, oh, let me tell you about that. I have a little scar, it's right here. It's on my chin. Don't look, it's really small. Uh, and it has a story. The story's not very impressive. Uh, but I was four years old and I was at an ice cream social at my brother's school. And um, my, my mother, just like all of your mothers, told, like for all my life, has told me um, what not to do when I'm inside. And, and that is don't, don't run. Right, exactly. But it was ice cream. So what did I do? I ran, and I tripped over a table leg, and I cut my chin. I had to get stitches. I told you it wasn't a very impressive story. <laughs> a couple years ago, I was at, um, in a seminary class, and I met a guy named Sean, uh, and, and we, we kind of got to know each other in the class, and, and I was in Sacramento, uh, away from home, and so we, we just grabbed dinner together, and, and I found out that he had served uh, in Iraq, two tours. And... Uh, I was telling him about my life and my marriage and my kids and, and what I loved about ministry and what was stressing me out about ministry and, and then he told me about his life. He wanted to be married uh, desperately but he couldn't yet because he, he had been serving. Um, he wanted kids but, but he hadn't been able to yet. Uh, he told me about what it's like uh, to, to hear bullets whiz by your head what it's like to live in constant fear for your life, what it's like to watch your best friend bleed out in, in front of you. He had, he had physical, emotional, mental scars. He, he said it was really hard to reintegrate back into civilian life, really hard to have friendships. He had deep anxiety, deep depression. He had scars. And I asked him, like, why, why did you sign up for that? And, and then why did you go back and do it again? And he looked at me with all sincerity and humility. He said, I signed up for that so you could get married and raise kids and enjoy your life. And it cut me. Jesus has scars that tell a story. And the story that his scars tell us is that we were so hopelessly lost that we were dead, but we were so deeply loved that he died for us. He comes to us with wounds. He doesn't come and say, just grit your teeth, squint your eyes, and have faith. He never, he never demands faith. Belief is a gift. Belief is a gift. Uh, so let's, let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. This is in the, the NLT God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. We can't take credit for our belief. It's a gift from God. See, a lot of us, we think that when we believe, we're doing God a favor. Um, when you get on a plane and the pilot gets on the intercom and says, fasten your seatbelts, you don't buckle up and go, you're welcome, right? Because 
that pilot is about to haul your dead weight and all your baggage across the ocean in a metal tube that's going hundreds of miles an hour, what did you contribute to that? You're doing the pilot no favors. And we do God no favors by believing in him. It's a gift. It's a gift. A lot of us need to stop thinking that we're doing God a favor. A lot of us need to stop believing that our belief is something that God wants from us. It's actually what he wants for us. A lot of us need to stop believing that that belief is a command from some sort of tyrant. It's actually a prescription from a doctor. It's gonna heal us. Uh, Check this out. Have you ever seen this? this? Do you know what this is? It's a decommissioned police car. You know how you get really antsy and nervous when you drive up to one of those? Why? Because uh, what, what that is determines how you drive, right? You're like, is, that, is it a police car or is it just some random guy who got a good deal on an, on an old uh, Ford? And, and it really matters. You know, you're looking, you're like, does it have lights? What does the license plate say? Does it have that weird little mirror thing? I don't know what it does, but that thing. Um, and you drive differently. I'm, I'm going, like, my hands are on the wheel. My seatbelt's buckled. My phone is down. I'm going the speed limit. And I'm like, oh, okay, never mind, right? Come on, true confessions. Who does that? Okay, police officers, are you paying attention? Good, we got some. There's a hand up here. Uh, what we believe about the police car is really important, and what we believe about Jesus is really important. A.W. Tozer says this in his amazing book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is like this thick and everyone should read it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What's he saying? He's saying what you believe about Jesus is really, really important. Let's see what Thomas said about Jesus. In verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is belief. This is a confession of belief. And it's such a a tragedy that Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas because this statement is actually the highest declaration there is in the book of John, maybe even all the gospels, of the, the deity and the majesty of Jesus. Lots of people call Jesus my Lord. My Lord, uh, in the Greek, Kyrios, it was just a, a term of respect, like master or teacher or whatever. And lots of people respected Jesus without believing in him. But my God, Theos, that's not a term of respect, that's a term of worship. And Thomas was saying, you're a teacher, but you're also God. You're a man, you're also God. You are God coming here in, in my service. It's a statement of belief, and that is the point. That's what, that's what God's looking for. Is, is Jesus to you a, a teacher worthy of respect, or is he a God worthy of worship? It's a really important question. So why does this matter? What, what does belief in Jesus do? And we're gonna finish up uh, in just a few minutes. So let's continue on in this text. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, who are those that he's talking about? It's us. Have we seen Jesus? I haven't. Blessed, happy are those who have believed, who have not seen. Let's keep going. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I wonder what those are. Maybe we'll find out one day. But... These are written so that you may believe that Jesus 
is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's the point of believing? Life in his name. That's the point. What's life in his name? Life in the name of Jesus is life that's marked with peace, with joy, with patience, with generosity, no matter what, no matter what we're facing, life with Jesus is marked with those things. And there are lots of people who are trying really hard to live life in his name without believing in Jesus, and they're miserable. You know why? Because our core beliefs, our, what we believe in our heart of hearts, is what, is, that's what our behavior comes from. And, and there are lots of people who are trying to fake it, and it's a terrible life to live. Life in his name only comes through belief in Jesus. It's a gift. Life in his name is, a, is still a life with doubts. But Jesus invites us to say, my Lord, my God. Like when temptation is staring at us. My Lord, my God. When our prayers aren't being answered, my Lord, my God. When, when a Christian uh, leader or just another Christian offends me, my Lord and my God. When I'm in that place of deep dark, my Lord and my God. It's life in Christ. So now what? How can we start receiving the gift of belief right where we are? So three things really quick here. First, doubt toward God. Doubt toward God. I didn't make this up. Uh, this is from a guy named uh, Bobby Conway. Um, doubt towards God. So you know that your doubt has a direction. You can doubt toward God or you can doubt away from him. Doubt toward God. I don't know if you picked this up in the text we read. Thomas hung out in that locked room for eight days. Eight days went by and he didn't leave. Like he didn't, he didn't believe everything that the, his disciples, his, his fellow disciples told him, but he had enough faith to at least hang out in the right place. And I don't know, maybe you don't have enough faith to face what you're facing right now and say, my Lord, my God yet, but do you have enough faith to hang out in the right place? To hang out in Christian community, to lean on good, good Bible teaching, to listen to good podcasts, Right? Do you have enough faith to do that? You can doubt toward God. Number two, listen to the apostles. Jesus, uh, through John, said, these things were written so that you may believe. Like the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're written uh, so that we can believe. That's what they were designed for. And if you're struggling in your belief like, are you reading the Gospels? You can lean on them. You can trust them. They stand on their own. Uh, and, and you may say, like, wait, but I thought they, I've heard that they were written by some dude in a cave, like, hundreds of years after Jesus, you know, lived. Like, how can we possibly trust those? You can just, just Google it. Like, the facts are out there. These, they're trustworthy historical accounts that are verified outside. They were listing eyewitnesses, <clears throat> by name so that the readers who were first reading these could go to Jarius and, and all these people and, and ask if it was true. Like you could, they could verify this stuff, they could fact check this stuff. It's verified externally. Uh, the, the gospel accounts that we have go, they date all the way back to decades after Jesus' resurrection. We can lean on them, we can trust them. So listen to the apostles, finally drop your conditions. Thomas's incredulity caused him to do something that we all do. Every Christian I know does this. He said, I'm not gonna believe unless 
I put my finger in the hands uh, and the feet and the side of Jesus. He had a condition. He said, I will not believe unless X. And we do this too. I will not, like I will obey, Lord, if you bless my marriage or you allow me to get married. I'll trust you if you give me a good life. I'll follow you if you heal me, right? But do you know what you've done when you do that? When you, when you put a condition on God, what you've done is you've made the condition your Lord and Savior. And the condition will never die for you. In fact, your condition will demand that you die for it. Let's let Jesus be our Lord and Savior, the focal point who will never leave us or abandon us or forsake us. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the story of Thomas. We're grateful, Lord, that you invite us to start with the belief that we have. And so, Lord, I pray that for those of us here who are facing doubts, we're on the verge of incredulity, I pray that you would cause us to be like the father of the the child who was terrorized by demons in the New Testament in Mark chapter nine that said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's our confession. Jesus, thank you for the gift of belief that you offer us. Amen.